Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning, folks. Andre here. As always, our privilege to have you join us for our online gathering. Thanks so much for showing up on time for our Sunday uh, online gathering experience. Now, as many of you are aware, this is the last sermon of 2020. And wow, what a year this has been. I don't know how many of you remember, but we started this year incredibly strong as a community. We did a anointing service right in this hall. We prayed for every single member of our church to be filled with a fresh infilling of the Spirit and unction uh, for uh, the days that are to come. You know, And we did a series called Receive the Holy Spirit. And then we did another brilliant series uh, called Life Together, talking about community life. And then March came. March came and we began meeting online as a church. And it's been some time since we've been able to meet together physically. At this point, we have a lot of things coming back to normal. We're seeing like, you know, the crowds returning and things feel kind of normal. Many of us have probably forgotten the anxiety, panic and hysteria that was very much present in the air in the early months of the pandemic. You're talking about like stockpiling of rice, toilet paper and many defaulting to self-preservational tendencies, fear, anxiety and disillusionment. But as far as I can tell, by the grace of God, it's only by the grace of God, our little church has survived. We have survived, we have remained intact through this crazy storm of a year. Now here are some highlights of the last few months. You know, we began uh, this season of meeting remotely with calling our church to adopt a rule of life. This is something that many in our community have participated in and have adopted into their lives. And this rule of life is simply put a set of practices that we commit to doing together as a people. And they include starting a day of devotion, fasting and praying and practicing generosity. And the testimonies we have heard from this uh, rule, this set of practices have been super encouraging. Here's one uh, from Lekhua. She says this about fasting. This was my first time doing a proper full day fast. I thought I would struggle with it, but it was surprisingly easier than I thought. And I even managed to go for a run in the evening. I really like the feeling of clarity of mind and spirit doing the fast and now look forward to it every week. What a testimony. And it was also in this time that we had a bunch of equipping webinars, the Family Life Conversation, as well as the Inductive Bible Study Workshop. We also did weekly prayer rooms. Those uh, over Zoom, those were really encouraging uh, to just see people show up to pray in the seat on behalf of our church, but also our world. And uh, we also had community events like uh, the recent Trivia Night, and for teaching, we did a couple of series, you know, while we are gathered in this manner, we did a series on the fruit of spirit in the age of the flesh, a biblical literacy series, and we recently uh, concluded one on the church. And on top of that, we did 100 episodes of the daily podcast. Uh, we're on a break now, but hopefully sometime we will come back together to do that again. Now, as a community, we also rallied and served the dormitory of brothers. We set aside a considerable amount of our reserves to be able to do that. But on top of that, many of you gave of your time, your money, and your energy to serve uh, these group of brothers. Here's one testimony from the Gomez family. What we did that strengthened our spirits and blessed us even more was that we made cards of encouragement for the brothers. While we might not know the impact of the cards this side of heaven, we had an amazing sense of joy and peace when we saw those notes and packaged hearts leave our home. Now that's a great testimony of how God can, you know, 
move our hearts and our spirits even as we uh, you know, set aside our comforts and set aside time in order to serve others. God meets us even whilst we serve. And here we are at the end of 2020, ladies and gentlemen, with episode 40. This is number 40, uh, the 40th online gathering that we had uh, done together. Something that you realize by now requires a lot of energy and creativity to produce weekly. Now, working fast and together, our church transitioned to online gatherings uh, in a matter of a day, I believe, you know, and under the tireless direction of our staff as well as our volunteers, uh, we have made this an amazing experience, I believe, and I believe many of you have been blessed and nourished even through these gatherings. Now, beyond all that we did as a church, hearing story after story of God's providence and leading and people discovering new aspects of God's kingdom, being led to be missional and sacrificial, deepening their love and relational commitments to one another, we see God's hand and spirit at work in our community. There is indeed much to be grateful for. So before we get into anything, into the teaching of today, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge all of you, all of you who have been faithful and diligent in attending the online gathering, in staying engaged with the church, in participating in the communities, in participating in various missional initiatives. I want to say to all of you, well done. Well done for being faithful, well done for being diligent, well done for attending the online gathering. Well done for resisting the pool and allure of Sunday brunch. Well, well done. And let us also most of all take a moment to thank God for this year. And some of you might find it hard to do so with the challenges that you are currently facing. But if we were to consider deeply enough, in spite of all that we face, you would be able to see God's hand mercy, grace, and kindness, even in the midst of the challenges that we face. So let us take a moment as a community, as the city, to thank God for this year. In spite of all that we face, in spite of all that we see in our world, we can see God's faithfulness, mercy, and grace, and hand upon our church and upon our lives. So let's take a moment. Let's thank God. Let's praise God. Let's give a few hallelujahs. Let's shout all across the island, for He is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is with us in every season. So let's praise God and thank Him for this year. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Now, with regards to the pulpit, this year has been a year of pastoral instruction. Most of our teachings have been in that vein of giving uh, our community, our people, uh, instruction, pastoral instruction, biblical perspectives on how do we live well in these complex times. And I do believe that that's one of the primary, uh, you know, primary uh, functions of the pulpit. Yes, it is to exegete and exposit scripture, but it's also to identify uh, aspects of our culture, of our moment that are out of sync with God's way, look to his word, glean from his truth, and endeavor to live in a different way. And isn't 2020, this year, a year where our world has been shaken, but not just that, it has revealed and shaken much in our soul and in our lives. Early in this year, if you remember, uh, there was a lot of hoarding going around. Uh, people were hoarding rice, hoarding toilet paper, and all that stuff. And I, uh, I can be honest for a sec, very well resisted much of that impulse. You know, when people were hoarding toilet paper, I'm like, all good. I have a bidet at home, and so it's all good. 
uh, people were hoarding rice. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I don't eat rice. I have potatoes. I have noodles. I'm good. But when people started hoarding canned food, particularly luncheon meat, that got me out of my seat. And I, you know, let's be honest here, my instinct was to run to the supermarket and begin to hoard uh, cans of the cans of luncheon meat because it's my favorite. Now, I don't know how many of you have noticed some of these instinctual moments where your instincts uh, seem to gravitate to a way, a path that is outside, that is contrary to the way of Jesus. And often these moments where our instincts come out and are displayed, these are the best revealer of what is actually in our hearts. The blunt truth is this. For many of us, we hope and we desire for 2021 to be a better year. And in many ways, I shudder to think how worse of a year 2021 can be compared to 2020. But many of us have great hope for 2021 being a better, greater year. But hear me in saying this, 2021 would be a no better year if we were to fall into the same temptations and traps that we did in this year. In this crucible moment that, of a year that we have lived in, we ought to ask, how have we fared in our discipleship to Jesus? How have we fared as the people of God on the earth? How have we fared as God's people living in these complex times? Did we give in or did we stand firm? Did we conform or were we transformed? Did we capture this moment or did we let it slip? And so I thought as we close out this year and, and anticipate 2021 and perhaps some of you make certain resolutions and uh, resolve a certain way for the new year. It would do us good to reflect, examine, and consider how we have done this year, to repent if we need to, and ask for God's grace to meet us again, even as we face the new year. And so I have for you today just an exaltation, and I'd like to take us into a moment of reflection, repentance, and response to God. And we have done this uh, sermon and exercise uh, for the last three years, and it's really important, even as we end the year to take a step back to realign our hearts and our lives to the purposes of God. So for this morning, uh, my message is titled A Year in Review and this is the 2020 edition of A Year in Review. Let us pray as we begin. Father, we pray even as we lean in to your words this morning, even as we uh, look to contemplate and reflect and examine how we've conducted our lives uh, this year. God, we pray for just your spirit to lead this time. Lead us into all truth, O oh God. Review the things that ought to be revealed, O oh God. And even as you do so, Lord, we ask for your grace to meet us in our weakness, in our failings, in our inability. God, we trust that your grace is that which truly empowers us to live in a way, in a manner far beyond what we can do in our own strength. So God, we ask, even as we are confronted with our lack, may we also be met with your abounding grace. God, we thank you for that faithful promise of Scripture. We look to you this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I'd like to begin with telling the story of Robert the Bruce. And I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Braveheart, but Robert the Bruce was the legendary king who united the clans of Scotland as depicted at the end of the movie uh, Braveheart. Now, shortly before his death, Robert the Bruce requested that his heart be removed from his body and taken on a crusade by a worthy knight. Now, James Douglas, one of his closest friends, was at his bedside and took on this immense responsibility. 
The heart of Robert the Bruce was embalmed and placed in a small container which Douglas carried into every battle. He carried it around his neck. And he literally carried the heart of his king pressed against his chest into every battle. Now, in an ill-fated battle, Douglas found himself surrounded. And in this situation, death was both certain and imminent. And in that moment, Douglas reached for the heart strapped around his neck, and he flung the heart into the enemy's midst and cried out to all of his comrades, fight for the heart of your king. And one historian quoted Douglas as shouting, forward, braveheart, forward, braveheart. And the motto of Douglas clan till today is simply forward. Now, it's great to hear of stories of passion, courage and bravery from the past. But the question we ought to ask ourselves today is this. Is this sort of devotion and passion available to us today? In a world like ours, is it possible to give yourself so fully to a cause that you would risk your very life for it? Is it possible to throw your heart so completely into anything, even your relationship with God? Is abandonment, passion, wholehearted devotion still possible in this day? With all of its allure and options, or is this the stuff of legends? Now, at the core of my being, and I believe it is true for you too, I long to live a life of passionate devotion, and I believe you do too. Yet that faint glimmer of passion is often overwhelmed by the burdens, the busyness, and the responsibilities of life. Passion seems like a luxury reserved for the young. Now let us consider the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel for all who desired to follow him in his day. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Strong words, but that was the baseline requirement for all who sought to be a follower of Christ. But instead of a cross-bearing, self-denying discipleship, Today, what is largely observed is a consumeristic, fragile, powerless, watered-down kind of discipleship. Now, it would do us good to consider what has transpired in the church amongst the people of God since these words of Christ were uttered. Now, in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine, after a prolonged period of Christian persecution, made the imperial endorsement of Christianity and declared it to be Rome's official religion. Now, the persecution of Christians stopped and droves of people professed themselves to be Christians in response to the emperor's decree. However, the brand of Christianity that soon followed paled in comparison with the lifestyle of the early disciples. Now, to the Romans, religion was simply the rituals that you do, the gods that you worship, uh, that you erected a shrine for, who you prayed to, and there was virtually no ethical or moral demand when it comes to religion. No reorientation of life whatsoever. So all of a sudden, the nature of Christianity or the Christian faith shifted. To be a Christian previously meant uh, reorienting your life around the teachings of, of Jesus. It was yoking yourself to Jesus' ethics and it often would mean persecution, opposition, even death. And in that day, what we saw was that Christian, Christianity moved from a reorientation of life itself to merely an add-on to life or whatever you deem 
uh, your lifestyle to be. It was an add-on instead of reorientation. And so in that day, with the, uh, you know, the imperial endorsement of Christianity, what we saw was the birth of what we commonly term as nominal Christianity. In a nutshell, it means that you can be a Christian in name but deny Christ by your lifestyle. Interestingly enough, right around that time, we saw a decline of an authentic expression of Christianity. And in the midst of that decline, a group of Christians observing the permissiveness and passivity that wrapped itself around Christians grew dissatisfied with the way things were. And they withdrew into the desert. They moved to the desert, adopted a way of simplicity. They withdrew, reevaluated, prayed, and realigned. And while they were in the desert, they devoted themselves to each other, to God. And out of that community came some of the richest writings that have so nourished uh, the body of Christ uh, for the last thousand of years. And these people would be known as the Desert Fathers or com- more commonly referred to as the founders of the monastic movement. Friends, Kafa says this about the fathers of the church, the, the Desert Fathers. The fathers of the church were not afraid to go out into the desert because they had a richness in their hearts. But we, with richness all around us, are afraid because the desert is in our hearts. Now, the point of the couple of stories I've told you is not for you to go retreat to a cave somewhere, read the Bible and wait for Jesus to return. The Bible is pretty clear in its language. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are to stay planted in, the, in, our, in society to influence, to live in a compelling Uh, alternative ways such that God may be glorified through our lives. We are to be a distinctive people. The point here that I would like to bring us to is to realize that there has to be points in our life that we have to retreat, to uh, come to a place of reflection so that we may be realigned for where we have gone astray, either through the busyness or the burdens of life, where we have uh, adopted a way that is contrary to the way of Jesus it is for us to take a step back so that we may be realigned to God's word and purpose. Now, here's the observation from that story. When the Christian faith, as God intended it to be, veered off its course, God raised up a people to defy what was normal and paved the way for a true, authentic Christianity. And I think precisely we are in such a climate, such a climate in this day where Christianity or what it means to be Christian carries with it a broad range of perception, definitions, and commitment levels. In a first world city like ours, we are danger. We are in danger of embracing a kind of Christianity that is subpar, nominal, uh, compromising. And we delude ourselves into thinking that that is Christ's vision for our, life, for our lives. And that's Christ's vision for what it means to live life in all its fullness. We're in danger of people of living a passionless, apathetic, self-centered life. Richard Foster says this, Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. So the question is this, are we content with a superficial, apathetic, half-in discipleship Or do we desire to throw our whole lives, our whole heart into the pursuit of God? Because the call of Jesus is not just about morality or doctrine or religious performance or even outreach. It is about living well. It's about learning to live 
in this world with such a way that produces the fruit of a spirit in our lives and the fruit of the kingdom as a preview for the life that is to come. That is what it means to be a disciple for Jesus in our world. It was true then, some 2,000 years ago, and it is as true today. Now let's read a passage of scripture together. Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 13, it says this, You are the salt of the earth. This is the words of Jesus to his disciples. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. Now, uh, we would know that Jesus uh, closes this famous set of teachings known as the Beatitudes with these lines. You know, it's commonly referred to as the salt and light uh, paragraph, right? Now, the Beatitudes were Jesus' teachings and sayings of what are the characteristic traits unique identity of those who have been formed by the kingdom. Now he closes that set of teachings, this stellar set of teachings with this famous, frequently quoted metaphor to describe the people of God. They are salt and light. Now most Christians, when they hear the word salt and light and our call as believers to live it out, think of it as simply living in a nice way. It means for Christians to be planted in workplaces and schools, uh, to be nice to their colleagues, to their friends, their families, and hostile environments, Christians are just to be nice people. And we don't really have a sense of the provocative vision Jesus is painting for his disciples through this text. Uh, and it also doesn't do us a lot of good with how often this text is quoted and read and thought. We have a kind of familiarity with this text. And so, and so because of that, we don't really fully weigh the implications and the meaning of this text. And so it would do us good to even consider what the first century audience would have heard through Jesus' uh, encouragement and exaltation to his disciples to be salt and light to the world. Now, the first century, salt was an immensely valued commodity. In fact, some of the Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. Their wage was salt. And so the phrase, not worth his salt, would actually have to do with a Roman soldier not uh, performing up to par and still being paid in salt. Not worth his salt. Eating salt uh, together in the first century was actually a mark of friendship. And so, you know, if we were truly bros, we would sit down and crack open a packet of salt and eat together. That was what it meant to be truly close friends. We would eat salt together. Now, salt or salt taking was also used in a covenantal sense. In the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with David and he utilizes salt to do it. We read about it in 2 Chronicles. It was a salt covenant. And also we observe in the Old Testament, many offerings had to have salt sprinkled on it in order for it to be uh, acceptable to God. And so in this sense, right, in uh, to the first century audience, salt functioned in some sense as an extension of endorsement, meaning, value, but it's also a kind of covenant and commitment. And so when we hear of Jesus calling us, his disciples, the salt of the earth. It isn't niceness as we may suppose it to be, but many would agree that Jesus is implying a kind of allegiance, agreement, and commitment with his ways, his values, to embody them in the world, to embody the Beatitudes, to live in such a potent and provocative manner, to live in the way 
of the kingdom that resists, that is opposed to the way of the world. To be salt meant to be marked of God for his purposes. It's radical allegiance to God in a culture of compromise. Now let's zone in on that line from that text. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Notice here, Jesus isn't after volume. He's after potency. The salt must hold its flavor. So it is to say that it isn't about how many people claim a faith. It is about how many people hold on to values and convictions in a salt-like manner. And so for us, it will mean that it isn't, isn't about how large a church is, how large this community is. It's about how potent its people are. Now, losing the saltiness of salt is really difficult. Sodium chloride is a really stable compound. Uh, if you leave salt in a jar, in a glass, uh, chances are it will remain salty for a really, really long time. So it's really hard for salt to lose its saltiness. Now, it do us good to understand a bit of the uh, historical backdrop to this text. In Jesus' day, people in Palestine took their salt mainly from two sources. The rich, rich could have their salt from the Mediterranean Sea, while others would take their salt from the Dead Sea. And salt taken from the Dead Sea could sometimes be contaminated by other minerals that look like salt but isn't really salt. And so contaminated salt would have the appearance of salt but wouldn't have the flavours, the distinctiveness of what salt is to be. Now the warning Jesus gives us here is very significant. It's this, beware of being contaminated. Contaminated salt does not hold its flavour, does not have flavour. Beware of being contaminated. Do not lose your distinctiveness. Do not lose your flavour. And in many ways, it's the uncompromised distinctiveness, uniqueness of salt that gives it its flavour and its usefulness. Salt without flavour is useless. We are as useful to God as we are distinct from the world. Let me say that again. We are as useful to God as we are distinct from the world. Another line from the text, it says this, It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now what a line, thrown out. That is a scary thought, to be thrown out, to be discarded. It is even scary to consider that there are five other places in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus speaks about people being thrown out and all of which are in reference to people who appear to be believers. I don't think the issue uh, to dive into here is Calvinism or Arminism or whether you can lose your salvation and all that kind of stuff. I believe the words of Jesus are simply this. It's either you are salt, distinct, potent, provocative, or you are useless and will be thrown out. It's a pretty clear statement weighty, heavy statements, clear as day. And I'll be remiss to mince the words of Jesus or water it down. Bonhoeffer said this in, re in, in a response to this text. He says this, The disciples then must not only think of heaven, they have an earthly task as well. Now they are bound exclusively to Jesus. They are told to look at the earth whose salt they are. It is to be noted that Jesus calls not himself, but his disciples the salt of the earth for he entrusts his work on earth to them. And then he goes on to add this strong warning. The call of Jesus means being the salt of the earth or being destroyed. Be potent or there will be no place for you. Be potent or you'll be discarded and thrown out. 
there is no lukewarm, moderate, nominal kind of Christianity when it comes to the Son of God. Which leads me to ask, now, are there areas in my life where I'm just trying to get along with culture in order to avoid pain and discomfort? Hear me in saying this, there is no biblical call to be liked or well-received in our time. But there is a call to be recognized as different. For the Christian, there isn't a call for us to be well-liked and received. But there is a call for us to be recognized as different and distinct, to be potent and provocative, to be salt. I'm sure we've observed that there's something provocative and alluring and inspiring of people who humbly and sincerely hold to their convictions even in the midst of opposition. Let us read on further in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16. It says this in God's word, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for, my, for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? One of the things we observe when we read Scripture is that much of Jesus' teachings doesn't really end with a commandment or a task or an application. It's just a statement about life, about reality, about how the kingdom works. Statements like, it's better to give than to receive, the last shall be first. He who lives by the sword shall die by it. No one can serve two masters. These are not commandments or ought tos. They're just statements that Jesus makes about how life works. And here we can see one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom. For whoever wants to save their life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life will find it. If you really want to live in Jesus' word, then you would have to first die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, uh, Cause of Discipleship, says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now this is really strong language. What does it mean to lose your life? For a lot of people, it's a call to literal death. Bonhoeffer would uh, be martyred and killed uh, by the SS in Nazi Germany, our brothers and sisters who live in persecuted countries till today are facing martyrdom, persecution, certain death. This goes back even further to the first century with Jesus and his disciples. James was beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death. Peter was crucified upside down. John was dipped alive in boiling oil and then left in the rock in the Mediterranean to die. And I hope that should a need ever arise, that you and I would be willing to suffer the same fate, even death for our faith in Christ. But thankfully for most of us in our city in the context we live in, at least for now, that's not a problem or issue. For most of us, this call to lose our life is not a call to death, but a metaphoric one. I think Jesus clearly has that in mind. It's a call to deny oneself, to self-denial. Jesus' call to come and die is literal death for some, but self-denial for all. Self-denial, my friends, is the true litmus test of whether we have affirm Jesus as our true Lord, Savior, and King. It is to put away our desire for comforts and and, and put aside our preferences and what we believe ought to be uh, the best vision for our lives in favor of God's way, God's vision, and God's words. 
Now, a story that I quote uh, every year is this story of the Knights Templar uh, before they would go to, uh, on a crusade. The Templars would, uh, before a crusade, uh, ask to be baptized. They would go through the rite of baptism and they would do so uh, wearing their full armors and with their swords. And as they would be put into the baptismal waters, uh, they would be laid into the water in an act of baptism. And as they would go into the water, they would stick their knives out of the water as if to say, God, you can have all of me except what I do with this sword. And it's as though through symbolism, they would say, Jesus, you can have all of me except this part to which I compartmentalize as something outside of your rule, your reign, your jurisdiction. Now, at the center of our discipleship to Jesus is a symbol. It's the cross. And tragically, we have lost the gravity and power of this image in our modern world. What it requires of us is largely ignored in our culture. But it was good to, remember, to, to be reminded and to remember this, that the cross is a man humiliated, killed, beaten, shamed. But catch this, he did so. Jesus did so willingly. As we look at this invitation of Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, we have to wrestle with this call to self-denial, to put aside our desire for comfort, for preference, for our own preferences to be lifted up in favour of God's will and God's way. The truth is, like all of you, I want the best of both worlds. I call this the Hannah Montana conundrum, right? I want to be really generous and be really rich. I want to be a pastor and yet live like a superstar and wear cool sneakers. I want character but without the suffering. I want humility but I don't want humiliation. I want patience but I don't want to wait. I want to grow in kindness but I want people, I don't want people in my life who regularly agitate me. I want to hear God's voice but I don't want to get up early. I want the life of Jesus but I don't want to take up the cross of Jesus. Close off with this quote before we hit into that time of contemplation. Totza says this, A notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need Him as Saviour and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to Him as long as we want to. This heresy has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be a student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? But is this really acceptable to Jesus? Now, what a strong statement, but how accurately does it capture much of the sentiments in the church today? We want the benefits of Jesus. We want the benefits of the kingdom. We want His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His provision, His love. But for, but for many of us, Jesus is but a compartmentalized aspect of our lives. We give Him our Sundays. We perhaps give Him the 10%. We give Him aspects of our, of our lives and perhaps our pockets and our schedule. But Jesus doesn't have our whole lives. He doesn't have our whole being. He doesn't have our whole heart. And what we have gleaned from scriptures as we read through those previous few passages is this, that Jesus isn't just satisfied with a portion. He isn't just satisfied with bits and pieces. He wants the entirety of our lives, the entirety of our love, the entirety of our devotion. And for many of us, we have reduced the desire of Jesus to be an optional thing. We have called radical what Jesus 
longs and desires and aspects from every follower. So it's with that that we enter into a time of introspection and reflection. Now introspection can be, too much of it can be a bad thing, but a lot of it can be good really. And I think especially in a year like this where we've seen much of the flesh uh, emerge and rise to the surface in our culture where perhaps some of us have defaulted to these instincts that uh, are you know, contrary to the way of Jesus. Let us take a moment this day, even as we end off this year with examining how we have conducted ourselves in this time and praying for God to meet us with His grace, with His mercy and His kindness, even as we come to Him to repent of some of the ways we have conducted ourselves, to repent perhaps some sins we have entertained in this year, to make it, uh, to intentionally posture ourselves to pursue His will. David prays this prayer in the Psalms. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And what we're going to do in just a moment is to ask God to search us, to know our hearts. There's only God who is able to peer into the deep recesses of our soul, to know our every desire, our every intention, every insecurity, every fear, every anxiety. Only God is able to do so. And we are inviting Him, giving Him access to our hearts and saying, God, search me and know me. To see if there's anything offensive within us, anything contrary to your way, O oh God, contrary to your will, O oh God, bring it to the surface such that we may be led in the way everlasting. And so for today, you know, I want to close off with asking us three questions, even as we take a few moments to ponder, to examine, to reflect, to repent, and ask to be realigned to God this day. These questions uh, don't, uh, you know, capture the full uh, intent and the, the full uh, scope of what discipleship is, but I believe it's a good starting point even as we resolve for many of us to live differently in the new year. The three questions are this. Do I trust in God's vision for a life well lived? Now, this is a question of surrender. Because we don't surrender because we don't trust. Do we really believe that God is good? Do we really believe that He is Lord of all? Do we really believe in His vision? Next question is this. Are there any areas in my heart or life where there is compromise? Now, this is a question of repentance. Perhaps in this time you haven't really devoted yourself to God but devoted yourself to mindless binging and have perhaps entertained and given room and footholds to different sins and indulgences. This is a good time, good day to repent. Let us not put off that which bears with it such great and eternal consequence into the future. It's time for us to repent of sin and seek for God's forgiveness, His mercy and grace and His restoration. And the last question is this, do I live a life of sacrifice or convenience? Now this is the question of wholehearted devotion where many of us have defaulted to pursuing comforts, convenience and what is safe. God is calling for all of us, just like Robert the Bruce, to throw our whole hearts into His vision, into His mission, into His way. It's a question of wholehearted devotion. And perhaps one of the things we have to ask ourselves as we go into the new year is, how can I move gradually away from pursuing convenience and comfort into sacrificing 
more for the Lord? Now, these are three questions that I believe will be a good starting point for us to reflect and examine even as we resolve to live differently in the new year. And so the questions are going to come up on screen and we're going to take some time to reflect. I encourage you right now to break out your phones, the notes app, or break out a piece of paper and pen and allow for the Spirit to speak to you even as you reflect. Let's do this together as a community. Now, I hope that you uh, experience the Spirit even as you examine and reflect that God spoke to you uh, about you know, perhaps some areas of your life that needs work and you have experienced His grace. Now, hear me in saying this. You know, I don't want you to feel an unnatural burden that you need to figure and fix all these things on your own. You know, one of the statements we made uh, in that series on the fruit of the Spirit is that it is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of self-effort. Much of what God wants to do in us does not come through pure self-effort. It comes through partnership with the Spirit, allowing Him to produce these things in us. But we don't do so by sitting idly by. We give God access to our lives, repent of ways of that which we have uh, you know, committed that is contrary to His ways and ask for His grace to meet us, to empower us. And I hope that was what you experienced through that exercise. Now close off with this final quote. John Tyson, one of my favorite authors and teachers, in reflecting of the story on the story of Robert the Bruce, writes this. Near the end of Jesus' life, when he knew that his death was approaching, he pulled his disciples close and issued a call. He wanted his heart to be taken on the quest by followers who would imitate his passion. And this call extends to us. We can embalm the heart of our king and carry it close on our hearts making the love of Christ a kind of relic, something to be remembered but never imitated. 
or we can venture far from the shores of complacency into the furious love of God and His mission in the world. The church now faces a moment when much seems to be lost. It is a moment that leads some to harden into self-protection, hesitancy and complacency. Will we have the courage to see what others cannot, that this moment demands our unreserved devotion to Christ? Throw your heart into the darkness, then follow the heart of your King forward. It is my prayer that our vision for 2021 won't be a pain-free year, won't be a year of normalcy, convenience or comfort, but that we will envision 2021 as the year where we throw our whole lives to follow the heart of our King, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Him wholeheartedly. And I pray that that is a vision that you would commit and capture even as we moved into the new year together. Let us pray as we close this time. Father, first of all, we acknowledge your faithfulness in our lives and in our community. God, we thank you that you are faithful, that you have preserved us and kept us till this point. God, we recognize that it is not by our sheer strength, knowledge, resource or know-how that we have made it thus far, but it's only by your grace and your faithfulness to us. And God, we pray even as we cross into the new year, God, we pray that your voice will be so present in our lives, that you speak to us for the areas where we have gone astray, for the compromise we have entertained in our lives. God, won't you surface these things in your mercy and kindness, such that we may deal with it. And God, we ask that even as we commit to do so, give us grace, empower us to live beyond our own ability. And God, we pray for our community. Let our community be marked with such passionate devotion. Let our community be marked with such a pursuit to follow the heart of our King wherever He goes, to follow the heart of our King in the midst of these complex times, to follow the heart of our King, to be loyal to You, O God, in the midst of compromise. We pray that You give us the grace to do so. Let us be a distinctive community. Let us be salt for the earth to the glory of God. We thank you for this year. We thank you for all things. May you be glorified in all things. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's go back into worship together.